Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted beats every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. questions and then read together. But tonight, uh, for our psalm, I have for us Psalm 110. In this psalm, I, I chose this because it, uh, it kind of has to do with Christ's uh, work as a mediator. The two of the functions of, of, of being a mediator had to do with being a priest and bringing a king. And this psalm is a, a messianic psalm that brings those two things together. You've got Christ's eternal kingship and his eternal uh, priesthood coming together uh, in this psalm, speaking of uh, the Lord and his ability to subject his enemies. So Psalm 110, starting in verse 1, says, The Lord, or Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That is the word of the Lord. Father, I just pray that you would bless tonight. I pray that your word would go forth with power, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us, Lord that it would, uh, we'd leave here wanting to love you and to worship you and to give you the honor and glory that you deserve. So I, I pray right now that you would speak to us, that, that you would instruct us, that you would give us direction in our lives, Lord, and, uh, and that you would just be high and lifted up. I pray that uh, tonight would, would honor you. Uh, so have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, so tonight we're looking at Christ the Mediator. Uh, and um, we're going to see that he's the one and only mediator that uh, God has given between a fallen humanity and a holy God. Now, the Baker Encyclopedia defines a mediator this way. It says a mediator is an intermediary, a go-between, or an expert in divine things not to negotiate agreement or compromise, but to approach the deity on behalf of others. And so to convey desired knowledge and reassurance with divine authority. And that's what Jesus is going to do for us. Today we see mediators in our culture. Uh, for instance, it's not uncommon in like a labor dispute where... Uh, you know, the union and the management are at odds with 
each other and they're negotiating for a judge to send them to a mediator, to appoint a mediator to try to resolve that dispute and get the people back to work. Uh, we also see a, a mediator in other ways as well. For instance, uh, in proceedings of a divorce, the judge might send the two parties to a mediator to, to try to negotiate the, the assets or the, uh, you know, the custody of the children, things like that. So mediators are, are, are things that we have in our culture. But we're tonight going to be specifically talking about Christ's role as a mediator. And his role is, is, is more than that. It's reconciling a, a sinful man to a holy God. According to the Bible, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that mediator is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says as much in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, and we have this one mediator, Paul tells us in the New Testament, but this is something that was... This is a need that was recognized and anticipated throughout the Old Testament. Even in the earliest book of the Bible, Job recognized his need for a mediator. In Job 9, verses 32 and 33, he says, For he is not a man, as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire or mediator between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Right? So, so Job had this dispute or this problem, and he was saying, hey, there's nobody that could touch me and touch God and, and, and reconcile us. He was anticipating this mediator, this one who was to come, who was to be Jesus. He recognized his need for a mediator. There were also other forms of mediators in the Old Testament. There was uh, the, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And these all functioned in a role that acted as mediators to the covenant people of God. However, these prophets, kings, and priests could only partially mediate between God and his people because they needed a mediator themselves. They were types or shadows of the ultimate mediator who Jesus is. This section of the confession is, is rather uh, complex and detailed. I'm sure if you flip your outline over, you'll see that it's a lot longer than any of the other ones that we've looked at. Uh, so we're going to move kind of quickly through it. The good news is, is that a lot of the material that we're going to be looking at tonight, we've already covered, and we're going to cover again in the coming chapters. There's a bit of overlap here in these doctrines, which is a good thing because it shows us that there's a cohesion in, in these doctrines or in God's plan of redemption. Plus, we learn by repetition, so it's going to help us to, to really get these things nailed down. But in chapter 5, we looked and we saw that uh, how the fall happened, how sin entered the world, and we saw the punishment thereof, and how because of the, the, the fall of, of Adam and Eve, how corruption came and corrupted just about everything. Right? And then last week, we looked at how God made a covenant, right? And, and his covenant was going to be to send a mediator to come and, and reconcile fallen man to himself. Right? Now we're, tonight we're going to look at Christ the mediator. He's the one that's going to come and take that covenant and apply it. He's the one that's going to take that covenant and, and make it uh, come 
actually bring it to fruition for fallen mankind and the holy God. We talked about how there was two different covenants. There was the covenant of grace, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of works said that you had to be perfect. You had to be personal. You had to be perfect obedience. That Adam and Eve had to perfectly obey God's one rule for them, right? They couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they failed that, right? They, they blew that. And so God made a covenant of grace. And this covenant of grace made a way for there to be a substitute. It didn't do away with the covenant of works. It said that the covenant of works still needed to be fulfilled, but that God would provide somebody that would fulfill the covenant of works on our behalf. And it made a way that by believing and trusting in this substitute, that his work would be applied to us for our covenant of works. And we could be made right with God and have fellowship with God through this mediator. This promise was given in the garden directly after the first sin, right? There was a promise that the seed of the woman was going to come and it was going to crush the head of the serpent. And it was by believing in this promise that there was going to be one that was going to come and, and defeat the serpent that the substitutionary work of Christ would be accredited to you. That's what we talked about last week in, in these two covenants, right? So the covenant of grace made a way through believing the promise that you could have Christ's work of the covenant of works applied to you. So from then on, from uh, Adam and Eve believing in that promise that the serpent would crush the head of the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that, uh, that they were saved and everybody after them would have Christ's righteousness imputed to them and they'd be reconciled to the God. It's important that we highlight the fact, though, that natural man is an enemy of God and the object of God's wrath. Our, our culture doesn't really think of things this way, that the unbeliever is under God's wrath, that they're hostile to God, that they're at war or enmity with God. But that is 100% the truth. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, including the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath. That's why we need a mediator. We're children of wrath. We're hostile towards God. We're at enmity with him. But then Paul's going to go on to talk about this mediator. He's going to tell us who he is in verses 2 through 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It was through this mediator, through Christ, that we're made alive together with Christ. Now that we have an idea of what a mediator is, and who the mediator is, and why we need one, let's look at some aspects of Christ's work as mediator uh, that the authors of the confession thought were important for us to know. So we're going to go through some of these. So letter A, fill in the word mediator. G 
Jesus as the one and only mediator. First uh, Timothy 2.5 again says, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is obviously the one mediator that God has provided to reconcile sinful man to himself. You know, I've been asked before what happens, you know, when a real pious Jew or sincere Jew dies. You know, this Jewish person that, you know, uh, all he's heard about is Judaism. and He loves the Lord, or at least he thinks he loves the Lord. He does his best to, to honor the Lord. Believes in God. They believe in the scriptures, at least the Old Testament of the scriptures. They believe God is the creator and the sustainer of the world and all that is therein. They don't overtly worship idols or false gods. Will this person go to hell? Will they be damned for not confessing Jesus Christ? And my answer is yes, they will. You see, People like the Jews, they could believe in an eternal, all-everything God who created and sustains everything, yet be lost because they have no mediator. There's no one there reconciling them to God. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, they gave them a picture of the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world, but it could do no more than put a temporary covering over their sins. These animal sacrifices couldn't remove the guilt. Only the one true mediator could do that. So these sacrifices pointed to Jesus, the mediator, but it couldn't make them actually right with God. They needed Jesus, and they still do need Jesus. So for number one, fill in the words eternal and please. Jesus as mediator was the eternal plan, and it pleased the Father. We don't tend to think of this very much, but we should. The, the plan of salvation was concocted between the Godhead and eternity past. Okay? In some circles, this is what they call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is different than any of the other covenants in the Bible in that it wasn't formed between God and man, but it was between God and God and God. It was amongst the three members of the eternal Godhead. And it was formed amongst the members of the Godhead before any creative act. It happened in eternity past, before God created a single thing. And this covenant, it presupposes that there's going to be sin in the world. That, that sin is going to be an issue for humanity. This is why we say that the fall wasn't outside of God's counsel. It was something that did not take him by surprise. It wasn't something that altered his plan for the world. It was part of the plan. But the covenant of redemption teaches us, teaches this. The members of the Godhead, they formed a covenant amongst themselves. The Father said that he would draw out a people to give to the Son as a gift. And the Son agreed and said, yes, I will take on flesh. I will go to the earth. I will live perfect under the law and fulfill the law. But then I will die on the tree, the cursed on the tree, take the penalty for breaking the law, and then I'll rise again on the third day. And the Holy Spirit said, I'll take that work that Jesus does on the cross to redeem mankind, and I'll come and I'll apply it to people in real points in time. 
throughout redemptive history. So this is something that was written before the foundation of the world. This is something that has always existed in time and space. That's why in Revelation 13.8, it says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that has been slain. So everybody that was not chosen by the Father and had their name written in the book of the Lamb's book of life, one day in the tribulation period, they will go and they will take the mark of the beast and they will go the way of the world because their name was not written in the book of the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. This is how we could say that Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world because that was the plan from eternity past. And it was evidenced in that after the first sin covering was made from a substitutionary sacrifice that justified Christ. Throughout the entire Old Testament, these sacrifices are seen pointing forward to their fulfillment in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So from Adam and Eve's very first sin in the garden, what happened? God came and and made a covering for them, right? Had to kill an animal, made a covering for them. And then from then on, every single sacrifice is pointing forward to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. That's how we could say Jesus was the land slain from the foundation of the world. And the Bible says that this sacrifice that, that Jesus makes, that it pleases the Father. It brought pleasure to the Father to sacrifice the Son. In Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. So Jesus is this mediator who's going to come and he's going to die on behalf of man and it's going to please the Father and it's going to reconcile many to God. So the plan for Christ to be the mediator is from eternity past and it was initiated by the Father and it pleases the Father. So number two, Jesus fills, or fulfills all roles of the mediator. So find the word all. I've quoted a few times now, 1 Timothy 2.5, which says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. That's true. But there's an interesting passage in the book of Galatians where Moses is called a mediator by the Apostle Paul. Galatians 3.19 says, Why the law then? It is added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the ancient or the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So this passage clearly states that Moses was a mediator in bringing the law to the children of Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, there's many men uh, that are ordained and anointed for roles that function as mediators. For instance, there's prophets, there's kings, there's priests, 
You see, the prophet was a mediator because he would speak for God. God would declare a message to the prophet, and then the prophet would go and declare it to the people. The priest was seen as a mediator in that they would represent the people before God. They would intercede on behalf of the people to God. They would pray for people to God. They would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. A great picture of this is Job. In the beginning of Job, uh, we see Job is this righteous man. And every morning he would get up and he would go make intercession and sacrifice for his kids. He had ten kids, and every day of the week they would party at a different kid's house. And they would have these drinking parties and, you know, just weren't right with the Lord, didn't really have a mind for the things of the Lord. But Job did. And Job was every morning getting up, offering intercession, making prayer for his kids, offering sacrifice to the Lord for his kids, acting as the priest of his house. So we have the prophet who speaks for God, the priest who intercedes for the people, makes sacrifice for the people. But then we have the king, right? The king was to rule the people in a way that pointed them to God. They were to represent God and they were to reflect his will, his righteousness and his justice to the people. You see, in all three of these offices, there were both good and bad people. There were good examples of prophets and priests and kings, and there were bad examples of prophets and kings and priests. The good examples, they typified Christ, and they pointed to the ultimate mediator that is to come. The bad examples are are, are there, and God allowed them to leave us wanting more, to realize that these human mediators, these human leaders that God has given us aren't enough, that we should be crying out, for a true and righteous mediator, the one who can really mediate between us and God. So yes, there's other examples of mediators in the Bible. However, they simply typify Christ or reflect some aspect of his mediation. It's only Christ who's the true prophet, the prophet like unto Moses. It's Christ who's the true high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it's only Christ, who is the King of Kings. He is the one true mediator. In, in, in other words, Christ is the essence or the substance or the sum total of all the types in the Old Testament. He is the only one and true mediator that can reconcile a sinner to a holy God. This is what it says in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things could never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The, all that in the Old Testament was a shadow or type that was pointing forward to Jesus' ultimate work on the cross that would take away the sins of the world. Jesus, though, fulfills the role of prophet. We talked about how the Old Testament prophets were a type of Christ in the way that they would mediate the word of God to the people. But Jesus fulfills that role of prophet. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses the prophet that Moses told the people to look for. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Remember, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, right? They've gone through the desert for 40 years, and they've made it to the end. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses goes through and, and, and recites the law to them a second time. Recites the highlights of their wilderness wandering. And he's warning them. He's preparing them. He's saying, hey, you're about to go into the, the promised land and do it right. You know, I'm not going to go with you, but this is what you need to know. I, I want you guys to be right. Remember, they rehashed the blessings and the cursings from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. But he says this. He says in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This was speaking of Jesus. That's why when the Pharisees came to John the Baptist, and he was baptizing there in the Jordan River, and they asked him, hey, are you the prophet that is to come? He said, no. Right? He's like, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make way to the, to the Lord. To make the path straight. But they were looking for this prophet who was to come, who was the Messiah, and that's Jesus. The Old Testament prophets would speak the word of the Lord. They'd say things like, thus says the Lord. Well, Jesus would speak of himself. He would say things like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. The Old Testament prophets could speak the word of God. Well, Jesus was the word of God. Jesus was able to speak authoritatively in such ways because he is the prophet. He's speaking from himself. He's speaking from his own nature. He's speaking from God because he is God. He is the spirit of prophecy, but he's also the subject of prophecy. So, so he's so much more than these Old Testament prophets. Yeah, he's a prophet, but, but he's also the substance of what they were prophesying about. He is the prophet. But he also fulfills the role of priest. So someone who priest. Jesus fulfills the role of of priests. Now, a priest was somebody who would stand before God and man. It, it's the, the term is uh, pontifex is actually the Latin term. It means bridge builder. It was somebody who would build the bridge between fallen man and God. He, he would bring the two together. They would represent God, man before God by bringing intercession and by bringing uh, sacrifice to God. And then they would go and represent God to man by proclaiming the, the word of the Lord, proclaiming the gospel to people. But Jesus just didn't offer sacrifices. He was the sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath. And he ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand and is ever living to make intercession for us. For this reason, he's our great high priest. He could sympathize with our weakness because he knows what it's like to be God and man. The high priest in the Old Testament, they didn't know what it was like to be God. They only knew what it was like to be man. 
but Jesus knew what it's like to be God and man. So he was uniquely able to fulfill this role of being a high priest and build that bridge between God and man. He's our great high priest. But he fulfills the role of a king as well. We see throughout the Old Testament many of these kings trying to create like a dynasty going forward. There's a, their lineage sitting on the throne, one after another after another. You know, and David's house sat on the throne for a little bit. Omri's house sat on the throne for a little bit. But their time inevitably came to an end. But Jesus is king forever. His kingship will never end. There will always be he will always be sitting on the throne. You know, I was recently talking to one of the leaders in the children's ministry, and she was thanking me for encouraging her to read through her Bible from cover to cover in a year. And and I encourage you guys to do that. You know, coming to Bible studies, listening to sermons, all of that stuff, reading commentaries, that's all great. You can learn a ton from that. But there's nothing like just sitting down and reading your Bible. Reading your Bible from cover to cover, over and over, and letting the Lord speak to you and minister to you. Nothing can replace that. But anyway, she was telling me how she's reading it, she's enjoying it, how she was in the book of Kings. And she was like, man, it just struck me because how many of them were just awful kings? They, they were so bad and <laughs> messed up in so many ways. They weren't faithful and failed to live up to their calling as a king. But I, I told her this. I was like, it's meant to be like that. It's supposed to leave us wanting more. It's supposed to leave us wanting this true and righteous king. Right? We're supposed to be left with this empty king. We're supposed to be left with this thirst for somebody that would rule rightly and righteously and would represent the Lord in faithfulness. And that person is Jesus because all of the Old Testament is building up this anticipation towards Jesus because he is the king of kings. Think about it, even David, right? He's kind of the hero of the Old Testament. He was a man after God's own heart. Well, even he blew it, right? He committed adultery and then committed murder. He failed. He committed these abominable because he's not the king of kings. He was a shadow. He was a type. And as great as he was, he wasn't Jesus. Only Jesus could be the king of kings. So we're left with this longing for Jesus. Jesus is the savior of his church, the only real savior. The authors of the confession mention Jesus as the savior of the church. Now notice they don't say the savior of the world. Now, this doesn't mean that he isn't the Savior of the world, at least not in some sense. But he's especially the Savior of the church because to be a true member of the invisible church, you must be saved by Jesus. He's the only way in. He serves as the church's mediator in that regard. And not only is he the Savior of the church, but he's also the head of the church. Boom, Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 25, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here we have Paul's instructions for marriage. He says that as a marriage is to reflect the church, just as Christ is the head of the church, so shall a husband be the head of the family. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, a husband should love his family and sacrificially serve them. But what does a head mean? What does that mean by Jesus is the head of the church? Well, the head is where the mind and the will are. So just as your brain controls and has authority over every part of our body, Christ should rule over all the aspects of his body. He should have authority. He should have rule over every aspect of his church. He's the one that makes all the decisions for his church. This is why we structure the church. Our churches are designed the way that they are. You see, there's a group of elders that, that make a decision. And the idea is, is this, is that these elders, they have the spirit of Christ in them. They're actually meeting right there, right now. And, and when situations come up and there's decisions to be made about, you know, how we should do money, spend our money, or what ministries we should be involved in, or what should be our focus, things like that, they pray about it, and then they come together and they discuss it. And the idea is, is this, is that if Christ is leading in a direction, that there's going to be consensus between them. They're all going to come to the same conclusion, that there's going to be, uh, it's going to be unanimous. But because God's not the author of confusion. God, God is works in order. And, and if he's truly moving in one direction, right, they're all, there's going to be more than one of them that are, are seeing that and being led that way. So the church is designed in ways to allow Christ to speak through its leaders and, and lead in a way where, where Christ is the leader. Christ is the one making decisions. Christ is the one who picks who his pastors are. Christ is the one who picks what ministry the church has. Christ is the one who decides how the church's finances are spent and things like that. And it's through prayer. It's through the move of the Spirit, through the leaders of the church. Jesus is also the judge of the world, filling the word judge. Jesus is the Savior of the church, and he's the judge of those not in the church. He's the judge of the world. John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, well, he has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. You know, when we go to evangelism, we often hear things like, you need to have a relationship with God. Right? We hear things like, God doesn't want religion, but a relationship. I'm sure you've all heard that, right? Has anybody not heard that before? 
Well, it's true. We definitely need to have a, a right relationship with God, and and that's really our, our biggest blessing here on earth is being in right relationship with God. I feel like this statement about people needing a relationship with God is kind of a bit of an oversimplification. And the reason I think so is because, in a technical sense, everybody has a relationship with God. You see, because he's either your Savior or he's your judge. We have a, a relationship with him uh, of blessing and, and uh, you know, him being our, our, our Lord and, and, and him being our Savior. Well, there's a whole lot of people out there that may not acknowledge it, they may not see it, but they have a relationship to the Lord and he's their judge. They're going to have to stand before him one day and be judged by him for the way that they've lived their life. We typically don't think about this in our society because we don't think of anybody really having that type of relationship with God. We don't think it's possible to be at enmity with God, to be hostile to God, to be under the wrath of God, to be under judgment of God. We live in a culture that says God loves everybody. Love is love, that type of thing. But in actuality, they're actually right now in a relationship of judgment, of wrath. The Lord. So everybody has this relationship with the Lord, one and the other. And the reality is, is that God's going to be the judge of far more people than He is the Savior of. Jesus said so as much in His Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, verse 13, He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly ravening wolves. There's going to be a whole lot more people that know Jesus as their judge than there are that know Jesus as their savior. And one day at the great white throne judgment, Jesus is going to mediate God's judgment on his people that have rejected him. That's the truth. So number three, fill in the word ongoing. Jesus' work as mediator is an ongoing work. Now, Jesus, don't get me wrong, his offering himself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world was a once-for-all sacrifice. He just needed to die once to make atonement for all the people in the Old Testament, the New Testament, who were going to be redeemed. Now, we don't take the, the Roman Catholic view that every week, God is, Jesus is being sacrificed week after week after week on the altar during the Mass. We don't believe in transubstantiation. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. And when we come to communion, we do it symbolically, remembering that sacrifice, looking back to it. Right? So Jesus just needed to be sacrificed that one time. Yet his work as a mediator still is ongoing because he still speaks his word and his will to his people prophet. And he still prays prayers of intercession for his people. In fact, he, he never stops praying prayers of intercession for his people. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who dear, draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. 
that's pretty cool to think about, that Jesus is in heaven right now praying for you, praying, praying for each one of us. He never stops. That's how we know that we're going to make it to heaven. Because Jesus is praying that we're going to get there. He started praying that we'd make it to heaven before he ascended there. In the, his, his final prayer there in John 17, the high priestly prayer, he prayed not just for his disciples, but those who had come to believe through them. And then he said that he prays that we would be with him where he is with the Father. So he was praying even before he, he ascended to heaven for us and that we would be in heaven with him. And Hebrews 7.25 tells us that that prayer is ongoing. It's continual. He's doing it day after day after day after day until he returns. Now, don't you think the Father's going to answer his prayer? Could you find one prayer in the Old Testament other than in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Father didn't answer his? Of course he's going to answer it. So we know that we are going to be in heaven because Jesus is going to, he's praying that we're going to be in heaven. And not only that, when we do sin, when we do blow it, and we think, oh man, I've, I, I've just blown it so much. I, there's no way God could still love me. There's no way I could still be saved. There's no way God could have anything to do with me after what I just did. We have an advocate <laughs> sitting right next to the Father who's pleading a case for us. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. You know what happens? We go out and we blow it big time. And Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's right there. Hey, hey, hey God, you know, Joe, you won't believe what he did today. He did, you know. He lusted after a woman, and then he used your name in vain, and then he, you know, did this and this, and he didn't honor his parents. And you know what Jesus does? He just says, "Yeah, look at my hands. Look at my side. I paid for it. It's all good." That's the advocate that we have in heaven. He's reigning in the fact that he's building his church and bringing his plan of redemption to fruition. Also, you know, I, I'm talking about how God or, or, or Jesus' work as a mediator is ongoing. Uh, it's often that we are the means of this grace to each other. Because we're often interceding for each other. He's speaking the word of God to each other. It's often his spirit working in us to bring the benefits of his mediation into the lives of the believers. Did you get that? When we are praying for each other, when we are sharing the word of God with each other and encouraging each other, that's Christ's mediatorial work continuing through his spirit in us. That's another reason why we shouldn't forsake the assembling together. We shouldn't forsake fellowship. Because we need that work, and it's going to come to us when we're together, when we're around other believers. It's hard for believers to speak the word of God to you when you're off by yourself. It's hard for them to pray for you when they never see you. <laughs> they don't know what to pray for. Okay. 
Letter B, Jesus was especially furnished to be the mediator. So find the word furnished. We're going to see that that, that Jesus and his, his composition as being both human and both divine allowed him to perfectly be the mediator God wanted him to be. So for number one, fill in the word God-man. Jesus is the God-man. The fact is, is that Jesus, to be the mediator, needed to be both God and man. And it's important that he had both natures because to redeem fallen man, a perfect man had to die. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But due to the fall, it's impossible for man to live a perfect life. Every human after Adam received a corrupted nature, which could only bring corruption. However, Jesus wasn't born of ordinary generations. Yeah, he had a human mother, Mary, who was corrupted and needed a mediator herself. But he was born under the conception of the Holy Spirit. And, and so that's how he got his divine nature. But his human nature didn't come with the, uh, the original sin, the corruption that ours does. So he was able to live life without sinning. He was more like Adam than like us. Therefore, he had the capacity to live a perfect life. You know, throughout the, the church age, theologians have kind of argued and been divided among whether it's possible for Jesus to have sinned. This is what's called the impeccability of Christ. Was, was it possible for Jesus to sin? Of course, God can't sin because that's against his nature. So his, his divine nature, the divine side of Jesus was was good. Of course, he couldn't sin there. But if Jesus couldn't sin in his human nature, how could his fulfilling the covenant of works with perfect personal obedience mean anything if he couldn't sin, if he couldn't grow it in his human nature? The fact is that this question whether Jesus could have sinned is really a, a theoretical question because we know that he never did sin. He was so focused on the Father and doing the will of the Father that Jesus offered up perfect personal obedience and fulfilled the law's commands. In his human nature, he perfectly fulfilled what God wanted him to do. It's also important that Jesus had a human nature because God can't die, and Jesus needed to die on our behalf so we can be made right with God. Now, Jesus never sinned and never had a sin nature, and we know that uh, death is a result of sin. How could Jesus then die? Well, this is how, because he was imputed with our sin. He agreed to take on our sin on the cross, and, and when he did that, it made him be able to die in his humanity. But Jesus had needed to have a human nature, but he also needed to have this divine nature. You see, only a divine nature could absorb God's wrath the way Jesus did on the cross. How long does it take for one sinless sinner to be extinguished from the wrath of God? One sinner who's not in Christ 
how long does it take for God's wrath against that sin and that sinner to burst? It's all of eternity. It's an eternal hell. But Jesus took the sins of the world of every person who would be redeemed throughout all of redemptive history. And God took it and smashed that wrath up and heaped it on His Son. And He absorbed it all in a three-hour time frame. See, it's impossible for us to fathom the amount of anguish, the amount of suffering, the amount of pain, the amount of turmoil that Jesus felt on the cross when He took on our sin for us. But he was able to take on an infinite amount of sin because he was actually God. Because of his divine nature, he was able to absorb infinite amounts of the Father's wrath. So he's been stressed, he's been tempted, and he's faced turmoil and, and pain and anguish to levels that we could only dream of. And which one of us has anguished over sin to the point that we sweat drops of blood? I ask this, I like this illustration. Suppose you go to a, a carnival, you're walking in, and at this carnival, there's this strong man that has a, a shop set up for a little area. And, and he's taking these rods, these metal rods, and he's bending them. And first he takes this quarter-inch rod, and he just starts bending it, and he snaps right in half. And then he takes a one-half-inch rod, and he starts bending it, and it snaps in half. And then he takes a one-inch rod, and he's bending it, and he's bending it, and putting all of his force behind it. But he can't break it. He bends it into the shape of a U. Which one of those rods took the most of the strong man's strength? The one-inch one did, right? Well, the Bible tells us that Satan's the strong man. Right? And no one could plunder his house unless someone stronger than him comes and ties him up to it. And Jesus took so much of the wrath of God that was on the cross and so much of the temptation of Satan at the same time that we can't even imagine. He didn't break. He didn't succumb to temptation. That's why he's able to be a great and faithful high priest. That's why he's able to make intercession for us. That's why he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he knows what it's like to be tempted far and above and beyond anything that we'll ever face. Yet he didn't sin. He remained perfect. So Jesus is God's perfect mediator, and to do so, he needed to have both a human and a divine nature. Number two, Jesus was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, 5 and 8. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, so, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is called the great kenosis or the great emptying. Now, in this, Jesus didn't give up his divinity. He didn't give up his divine nature. There was no part of his divine nature that he didn't have in his person. What he gave up was his prerogative to use his divine nature for his benefit. He lived life as a human being like you and I. 
or if he didn't use his divine nature for that, how did he do things like turn water into wine, walk on water, raise the dead? All the other miracles he did. Well, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, most all of Christ's miracles were performed, albeit to a lesser extent, I think, in the Old Testament. And most definitely didn't have a divine nature. You see, Moses turned water into blood. That was his first, one of the first plagues. Moses didn't have a divine nature. Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elijah didn't have a divine nature. Elisha multiplied food. He didn't have a divine nature. But they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit working through the prophets in the Old Testament that did wonderful things. And Jesus is said to have had the Holy Spirit without measure. And it was through the Holy Spirit that he performed the miracles. Likewise, the apostles. They don't have a divine nature, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were able to perform miracles throughout the book of Acts that reflected the miracles that their Lord Jesus performed. Peter and Paul raised people from the dead. They healed sicknesses. Paul, they would send his his uh, handkerchiefs, his, his sweatbands out to people, and whoever touched it would be healed. Peter would walk down the street, and whoever's shadow went over him would be healed. That was the Holy Spirit working through these regular men. And God. And so Jesus, yeah, he is God. He had a divine nature, but he didn't use his divine attributes. He submitted himself to the Father and allowed the Holy Spirit to work through him, just like a regular human being. Furthermore, offices of mediator, like prophet, priest, king, these aren't offices that you volunteer for. I'm sorry, I forgot a thing. Number three, Jesus was called to his role as mediator by the Father. There's only one call. So these offices like prophet, king, and priest, they, they didn't have volunteer signups for this. It wasn't like, hey, who wants to uh, audition to be the next king of Israel? We're taking applications for prophet today. You know, they, they didn't do that. In fact, we often see when God's called people to these offices in the Old Testament that they resist. They try to say, no, I'm not qualified. I'm not able to do that. Pick somebody else. Remember Moses when God was going to commission him to go and to free the children of Israel from Egypt? What did he say? He said, don't pick me. He's like, i got a stuttering problem. Pick somebody else. Remember what Gideon? So, hey, he's threshing the corn threshing the wheat down in the uh, hiding from everybody else. And, and God comes and convinces them that he's going to be the one that is going to go and deliver his people from the Midianites. Or how about Jeremiah? Jeremiah was complaining that he was too young. He couldn't serve as a prophet of God. He was just but a youth. You see, it's something that God was calling them into. It wasn't something that they volunteered to do. But God the Father elected and ordained Christ to be the mediator, and Christ accepted the call. 
and was faithful in the call. But God has called and ordained you to be a prophet, to be a priest, and to be a king. Will you accept the call? Will you be faithful? Will you speak for God? Will you intercede to God on behalf of man? Will you manifest the justice and righteousness of the kingdom wherever you are? That's what God is calling us to do. Just as Jesus was a prophet, a king, and a priest, we are to be a prophet, and a king, and a priest to this world. We're many Christs. We have Christ inside of us. We are to represent Christ to this world. It includes being a prophet, a king, and a priest. The question is, are we going to take the call in this world? Are we going to stand up and say, here's what the Lord sent me? Are we going to be faithful? Letter C, let's look at Jesus' work as a mediator. Number one, Jesus undertook this role willingly. John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. If we're going to fulfill, be faithful in all that God has for us, it's going to start with being willing to lay down our lives. That's where it starts. But number two, Jesus fulfilled the law's demands. You see, to be a, a mediator of the covenant, Jesus needed to fulfill the covenant of works. He needed to have personal and perfect obedience to all that God had commanded of him. And it would be through his obedience that we would be accredited with his righteousness, right? Second Corinthians 5.21 For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was accredited with our works and we were accredited with his through imputation. And God didn't make it easy for him to fulfill this covenant of works. Remember right after his baptism that happened? He was led by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was during that time he was fasting. He was hungry. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm hungry, man, I, I fall to temptation just like that. Like, I'm real good at saying no when I'm hungry. <laughs> like, but, but Jesus... was faithful. He was tempted of the devil in every way that Adam and Eve were when they failed that covenant of works. Yet he succeeded. He passed the test each and every time. Not only that, could you imagine what it would look like for somebody to have never sinned? Can you imagine what it would be like growing up, never sinning? I mean, what, what your siblings would say to you? What other kids at school would say to you? Talk about you being like such a goody two-shoes and making fun of you and all that. Man, I would want to just, they, they can sin, <laughs> you know? But, but Jesus didn't. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law and no doubt was misunderstood and mocked for it. But he was willing to go through the shame because it was through his obedience that was made right with God. Number three, Jesus paid the law's penalty. Not only did he fulfill the law's requirements, but he endured the law's penalty for sin. There have been many views of Christ's atonement throughout church history. 
there's what we call the moral influence theory. Here the cross demonstrates God's love. It shows that man does not need to be afraid of God. Hey, Jesus died just just to show us how much God loves us. He loves us so much that he would sacrifice his son for us. There's no reason to ever be afraid of God. He loves you so much. That's the idea. Then there's the Socian theory. The the cross is a great example for us, that says. Jesus showed us how to be self-sacrificial, how to lay down our lives for others, how to prefer others above ourselves, and we need to follow that example. Then there's the governmental theory. The atonement demonstrates justice. It shows us that there was uh, a demand that needed to be met. God's justice was met through the cross. There's a ransom theory. The ransom theory emphasizes Christ's victory over the forces of evil. It says we are enslaved to Satan, but Christ paid our ransom and bought us. And then there's the compensation theory. This emphasizes the debt for sin that is owed to the Father. Because he's the one whom all transgressions are first and foremost against. And there's aspects to all these theories that are true. No one theory of the atonement can encapsulate all that it is. Because the atonement is such a a monumental and massive event in history. There's more than one thing happening in it. But there's one more theory I want us to see. And our culture doesn't like this theory because of what it implies. It's called the penal substitutionary theory. It says that Christ died in our place. That we've all sinned, we've all violated God's laws, and we all deserve to be nailed to a tree and naked, mocked, shamed, and be tortured to death. But Christ did it in our place. Christ was condemned a criminal for us. He was our substitute. The movie American Gospel is all about this. And we might think this is basic. Like, this is, you know, this is, we should understand this as Christians. But it isn't anymore. There's a reason why the movie needed to be made. Right? There's a reason the movie was so controversial and people didn't like it. Because it told them that they're guilty before God and that they deserve judgment. And people don't like hearing that. Our culture doesn't like hearing that. Our culture likes hearing, oh, God loves everybody. You know, God's merciful, God's gracious, God is love. So as soon as you imply that they're guilty and that they deserve the cross, no, I, I, I don't want that. But the fact is, is that Jesus died as our substitute. Number four, Jesus gave evidence of his accomplishment. Turn the word evidence. perfect life and his death on the cross that we're reconciled to God. But it's the empty tomb and it's the ascension that give evidence that his payment was accepted. It's kind of the receipt that God accepted the payment of Jesus on the cross. I was in Israel not that long ago and I was looking at the empty tomb and it encouraged me greatly because I knew seeing this empty tomb, like, hey, 
this may or may not be exactly where Jesus was buried, but you can't show me where he definitely still is buried. Right? And if all the people looking over 2,000 years, I'm sure if he really is still buried, they would have found him. And the fact that he's not there tells me that God accepted his payment. That God accepted what he did on the cross because he rose him from the dead. And that he died for me. And I could be right with God. Letter D. Christ's work is good for all the elect of all time. We're almost done. We talked about this last week, right? There's only been one way of salvation throughout all of redemptive history, and that's through Christ. But the Old Testament saints access it through credit, and we access it through debit. But it was Christ who paid for both. Right? That's what we talked about last week. Letter E. Christ's work is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. So keep going. Sufficient and efficient. Now this last paragraph of the confession kind of gets into how uh, Christ's work is applied to us. And this, to be honest, is one of the areas where I, I slightly disagree with this confession. Up until now, I feel like this confession has been great theologically. It's been right on point. Uh, but I, I kind of see it here. Uh, an area where I, I slightly disagree. If you read this last paragraph, it's talking about a, uh, a limited atonement or a particular redemption. It's basically saying that when Jesus went to the cross, he only died for the people that were going to be saved, the people that God elected for the salvation. He didn't die for everyone. This is, this is what it says. Let me read it to you guys. The last paragraph of the confession. If you flip your outline around, you can see it. It says, To all those whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word, the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and to obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his mighty power and wisdom, in much manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. <clears throat> so one of the classes I teach at our school of discipleship is on Calvinism and Arminianism. And we go through TULIP, and we look at each letter of TULIP. And in this class, I try to show that it's not as simple as is Calvinism right or is Arminianism right. right? That there's some aspect of truth to both on each point. And so what we need to do is go through each letter of TULIP, the total depravity, the unconditional election, the limited atonement, the irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, and see what is and what isn't biblical about each one. Right? We don't want to say we're Calvinists. We don't want to say we're Arminians. We want to say that we're Bible people. We believe what the Bible says. And when I studied this, especially in regards to limited atonement, because on one hand, the Bible does limit the atonement. Not everybody's saved, right? So the fact that not everybody goes to heaven shows that the atonement is limited in, in some way. We're not universalists. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, it speaks of the sons of Eli, that their sins will never be atoned for, it says. So on one level, it's 
let me finish. But then the Bible's clear at the same time that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That, that he, he paid the price for everybody's sins. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, there's false teachers who are uh, bringing in destructive heresies into their church and leading to, to themselves to damnation. And it says that they're denying the master who bought them. So, so Jesus paid for these false teachers who are going to be damned. He paid for their sins in some degree as well. So, so I'm, <clears throat> there's a little bit of truth to both sides. The interesting thing, though, about this argument of limited atonement, I read books and books about it, and, and, and they're really long, and they use a whole bunch of adjectives and descriptive words to make their point. But both sides really end up coming away saying the same thing at the end. They end up saying what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to save every person that ever lived, but it's only efficient to save those who are left, those who are who are saved, those who the blood is applied to. And, 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 and so I think that's where we need to be. That, yeah, it's sufficient to save everybody. There's no reason that anybody who wants to believe in Jesus, wants to confess Jesus, wants to be made right with God, won't be saved. But on the other hand, those that the Father has given to the Son are going to be the ones who actually come. It's not that he tells the other ones that they can't come. He's calling them to come. He's begging them to come. He's commanding them to come. Receive forgiveness. It's just that they need a new nature. Their nature talks about them. Their nature's against that. Their nature doesn't want anything to do with that. And so God works in a way that ensures that some people come. He comes and woos them and changes their hearts and starts drawing them to his son. He's come. He's come. But we don't know who those people are. Right? We, we walk through this world and we don't know who's on that list. We don't know who the people are. And that's why I like this, what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He says, until God gives me the roll call of the elect, I shall continue preaching the whosoever will gospel. That is the gospel we are to preach today. He said, if I could walk around and pull up people's shirts and see an E on their chest and know they were elect, that's what I would do. I'd go around pulling up people's shirts, seeing if they had an E on their church, and, and if they did, allowing them into the church. He says, but we, we can't do that. We, we don't know who those people are. So I go around and I preach the gospel, and I trust that the ones who respond are the ones whom God has called. And that's what he's called us to do. So, Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that you came and you were our mediator, that you reconciled us to God. I thank you that you're continuing that work. And that's how we know that we're going to make it to heaven because you're praying for us right now at the right hand of the Father that we will make it there. That you're sending your word to us through prophets and through intermediators to, to keep us on track. When we start getting astray, you send us a Nathan to bring us to repentance and to keep us in line with you, Lord. I thank you for that. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here. I pray that you bless them, Lord. I pray that you strengthen them. I pray that you use them. I thank for, for this church. I'm thankful that we have a, a talent camp going on now.
now. I pray for that. I pray for all of those that are here that are involved with the talent camp here. And I just pray that you glorify yourself through that. And bless all the people serving, Lord. Um, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.